You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the life of David. We're calling Hills and Valleys. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. You have probably heard the name uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He is considered to be one of the, uh, the master pulpiteers across the history of, of vocational ministry. He wrote a book, it's called Lectures to My Students. Uh, it's widely considered maybe to be the best thing that he left Christendom. It's in this, there's a lot in here that is good for helping us think. I recognize to say lectures to my students, it might be uh, something that you and I would say, well, it's not really made for all of believers, maybe just those that are seminarians. He tells some stories in here that I think would have a broader impact for us, and I wanted to share one of those with you today. He writes in this book, the young man, there was a young man that was trying to apply to be a missionary. He writes this, as he was trying to connect with the London Missionary Society, that there was a gentleman that was placed over him to go through that process with him named Mr. Wilkes. And so Mr. Wilkes' job was to meet and approve and interview and ordain him, similar to what Derek just explained that Joe went through. So he writes this, he, Mr. Wilkes, wrote to the young man, the candidate, and told him, I want to meet you here tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. The brother who was coming lived many miles off, but he arrived at 6 a.m. punctually. Mr. Wilkes, however, did not. He did not enter the room until hours later, leaving the candidate waiting, wondering, but patiently. At last, Mr. Wilkes arrived. He addressed the candidate and came in and said, well, young man, you want to be a missionary? And he said, yes, I do. He said, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, sir, I hope I do. And do you have any education? Yes, sir, a little. Well, now, well, we'll try you. Can you spell cat? The young man looked confused. He hardly knew how to answer such a preposterous question. His mind evidently caught somewhere between indignation and submission. But in a moment, he steadily replied, C-A-T, cat. Very good, Mr. Wilkes said. Now, can you spell dog? The young candidate hesitated. Mr. Wilkes looked at him and said, oh, never mind, don't be bashful. You spell the other word so well, I should think you have no trouble spelling this word. He waited, and then he said, D-O-G, dog. Well, that's right. I see you do well in your spelling. Now for your arithmetic. How about twice two? He sat there and waited, then the student, the candidate patiently waited, and then he replied the correct answer and was dismissed. Mr. Wilkes walked into the committee meeting and said this, I cordially recommend this young man to you. His testimonials and his characters I have duly examined, and besides that, I've given him a rare personal trial, such that only a few could bear. I tried his self-denial. He was up early in the morning. I tried his temper and his patience. I tried his humility. Yes, he can spell cat and dog, and he can tell you that twice two makes four. 
I think he will do for he will do exceedingly well as a missionary. Isn't it interesting? You could go through the Bible knowledge questions. You could go through and ask him all these questions. He decided to put him through a different kind of interview. What if I force him to come here at six? What if I arrive late? What if I don't apologize? What if I ask him absurd questions about how to spell cat and dog? How is he going to respond? And he said, what I found to be true about him was that he, was in, he could handle self-denial. He could handle his temper. He could handle his patience. And he was humble which is why I think that we could come back and say, maybe those are all traits that all of us would benefit from. Maybe not just seminarians, maybe not just those going on the mission field, maybe that's true about you and me every day of our lives. And I think when we pick up our study today in the book of 1 Samuel, as I think David, if he were here with us, would say, those might be far better uh, qualities to have than being able to just spew a lot of knowledge. I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30 as we continue our study. Last week, if you were here, we looked at a lot of chapters. We went from 1 Samuel 18 through 31, and so we looked at this big picture. It's kind of like we did the 30,000-foot flyover of what's happening in this, which really goes from the time after David killed Goliath, and he came back to all of the cheers and the adulation of it all. Saul's killed his thousands. David's killed his ten thousands. And Saul knew what was going on because he looked up and said, he's got the people. The only thing left for him is the throne. And so we talked through very briefly, very quickly, 13 chapters, and we did the flyover. And then we went back and looked at one small story, and we're going to do that again, still within the broader context of what we talked about last week. If you were here last week, you heard us talk about the fact that Saul ends up needing divine guidance, and God remains silent from him. And Samuel has now passed away, and so he needs some direction. So he goes to a medium, and he talks to the medium, and he wants to summon Samuel and wants to know what's going to happen in this fight. What's going to happen? What's going to be the outcome? And the medium, through Samuel, says, oh, it's going to be a catastrophe. You're going to lose the war big time, Matter of fact, worse than that, you're going to die, your sons are going to die, it's going to be a complete and utter catastrophe for you. And so what's going on in the midst of this is that was part of our lesson last week. We mentioned it last week. This week, what we have is in the previous chapter, in 29, David had a bad day. David has that moment where he begins to question, can God really take care of me? Life isn't going very smoothly right now. He gets a little nervous. He gets a little anxious. And he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to the Philistines, and I'm going to hide from Saul with the Philistines. And so he goes to Achish, who's over, uh, he's over Gath, and Achish basically sets him up and says, you can have Ziklag. You can have Ziklag, and you can headquarter out of there. And what happens is we've got this battle, the one that the medium told Saul was coming that was going to be a catastrophe. That's getting ready to happen. And Achish, David goes to Achish and says, I can fight with you. Achish is, I'll take that. And the rest of the leaders, the Philistine Philistine leaders come back to him and say, we don't trust him. What if in the middle of battle, he changes sides and he defects? We can't trust that. And so David finds himself with a trip home. He gets to go back to Ziklag. And so all of a sudden, if you were here, we talked about the fact, Gath to Ziklag. And I recognize we don't know how far all these journeys were, but we know this, if we know that the journey from Gath to Ziklag took three days. 
And so all of these journeys he's been on, we can get a feel for exactly how much he's been traveling. So that's where we pick up our story. 1 Samuel chapter 30, I invite you to read with me starting in verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off on their way. And when David and his men, excuse me, uh, when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. Let's stop a second and catch up with the story. So he's got a three-day journey. He leaves Gath. He heads back to Ziklag. Three days. He's got a 600 people that are traveling with him everywhere he goes. This is his army. This is what he's got. And they come in. And because Achish had given him that land and they're headquartered out of there, the only people that are in that community are the wives and the children and the family members of the 600 who have been traveling with him. So they come back, they've had a three-day journey, and they walk into the city, and it's destroyed. Everything is destroyed. It's empty. There's no people there. Everything's been burned. Everything's been looted. You can imagine the emotion of what's going on. It's a tough day. The Amalekites were somebody that David had warred with before, and this was their retaliation. All of a sudden, they get to come back, and they take everything that they want they're going to win, right? Well, I want us to call attention to the end of verse two because we get a level of foreshadowing that's gonna come up in this story that they wouldn't have had as they're living it. What's that foreshadowing? Look at the end of verse two. They killed no one that carried them off and went their way. See, we need to remember that. They wouldn't have known that. They come into the city, everything's burned, everything's destroyed, it's empty. We know the end of the story. They're all alive. They're all alive. The 600 coming back, they don't know that. And by the way, David's not exempt from this. David lost everything too. And I don't know how you would respond to losing everything. You've lost all your family. You've lost everything you've worked hard for. You've lost your home. You've lost whatever was your source of income. All of it's gone. And they're upset. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Verse 4, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. There are people just like you and me. You and I would have responded in the same way. The despair, how badly that would hurt. The emotion on top of, and you probably have been there, right, where you're so tired, you're so fatigued that everything is a bigger deal than it would have been otherwise. Well, this is a huge deal anyway. And they're tired. And everything has gone sideways for them. How bad was it? Well, for David, David's two wives, who had also been taken captive, and let's talk about that for just a moment. God's design was always for there to be one husband and one wife. This isn't condoning this. This was how they handled things in the day. It was sinful then, it's sinful now. And David wasn't above doing what they did in culture. A lot of times it was for political alliances. We're not condoning that. Yes, he was still a man after God's own heart. That gives me hope and probably maybe gives you hope that you can still struggle in this life and make poor decisions and still be known as a man or woman after God's own heart. But you can see included in that was that where his two wives were taken. Verse 6, and David was greatly distressed. You and I would have been too, but let's add to it. For the people spoke of stoning him because they were all bitter in their soul. 
Now, this is David, right? This is David. This is David who beat Goliath. This is David who came home to the idea of Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens thousands. He is a hero everywhere he goes. And he just keeps winning battles and he keeps leading people and people are following him. And life is good if you're David until this moment. Because all of a sudden in this moment, it wasn't his fault. They're gone. They come back. But you know, as well as I do, we so frequently have to have someone to blame. We have to have somebody that we can point the finger at. When life goes sideways on us, somebody that we can look at and say, it's your fault this went sideways on me. It's not my fault. I have to have a villain. And that's what the people did. These 600 soldiers who have been with him all look at him like, it's your fault, David. It's your fault. And they want to stone him. We've gone from cheers to let's pick up stones and kill him. See why David's greatly distressed? Isn't it interesting? Is that we have in this story not only that he's greatly distressed, why? He's lost his family. He's lost the town. He's lost the spouses and families of all 600 people who are working alongside him and are battling alongside him. And now the people that have been loyal to him want to kill him. Who's left in your world, David? Have you ever felt like everybody has abandoned your side? That's where David is. Nobody is left with him. He's all alone in this world. Now that's David's side. Let's look at the other 600 people's side. What happens when your life gets taken from you? What happens when your life goes sideways? Well, they got bitter in soul. And I've been there. My guess is you've probably been there at some point too. When life goes sideways, what do we do? Well, 600 people got bitterness in their soul. And now they want to take it out. They want to have a villain. They want to make this right somehow. And they're willing to make it right by killing an innocent person. But see, David, the man after God's own heart, look at what he does. He's got a different answer. But David strengthened himself in the Lord as God. See, there's 600 people that says, I'm distressed in my soul. I want to kill you because I'm so distressed. And then we have one person who has a heart after God that says, you know what? This pain is so deep inside of me. That doesn't solve anything. What I need is I need to be strengthened in the Lord, and he's the only one that can do it. And so all of a sudden, we get a different way to handle a problem. I got to share with you a passage. This got shared with me years ago when I was going through a tough season in my life. Isaiah records this in Isaiah chapter 50. He writes this, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? So as we talk about this, let's draw a couple uh, of, of lines here for us. Number one, we're talking about believers. How do we know? Because these are people who fear the Lord. And even if we talk about people who fear the Lord, could this be a carnal Christian, somebody that's a backsliding Christian, somebody that doesn't care about their walk with the Lord? They're just in it for the walk or the reputation or whatever. Well, no. He obeys the voice of his servant. We understand servant to be the Messiah. So when we talk about this passage, Isaiah is looking at us and says, who among you fears the Lord? Okay, we're talking about believers and obeys the voice of his servant, the Messiah. So these are not only believers, but these are believers who are in fellowship, okay? These aren't people that are living in sin and have had their hearts hardened. These are people who know the Lord and are walking with the Lord. Let him who walks in darkness, wait, what? You can walk, you can know the Lord and walk with the Lord and find yourself in darkness? Absolutely. And there's entire schools of thought in Christianity that says that's just not possible. I think Isaiah would take them to task for it. 
Because it is possible that you can know the Lord and walk with the Lord and find yourself in darkness. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Now, I want to talk about that. So these are people who know the Lord. They're obeying the Lord. But more than obeying the Lord, you know what they're doing in the darkness? They're trusting in him. The idea is that you're leaning, is that there's so much pain in you and fatigue, you can't even stand upright. And so in those moments, in the darkness, you know what we do? We just kind of lean into the Lord, maybe more than normal, because we have no strength of our own. What happens in those dark moments of life, you and I both know, it takes everything out of us. And Isaiah would say, you know what we do in those moments? When we can't stand, we lean. And we lean into the Lord and we rely on his God. We rely on our God. If I lean and the Lord cannot sustain me, I'm relying. I've got everything leaning into him. If he can't sustain me, then I'm going to fall. The good news is he can sustain you and I leaning. He can sustain you and I trusting him and relying on him. Now, what happens in that darkness? Well, he goes on to say this, behold, all of you who kindle a fire and who equip yourself with burning torches. Why? Why would we do that? Because of darkness. As we feel so overwhelmed in the darkness is that we think, you know what? I don't want to rely on God. I don't want to lean into God in this. I would rather have light and not trust God because I trust my eyes with what I can see more than leaning on him in the darkness. I would rather light a fire. Give me my torch that I can find my way through the darkness and walk out carrying my torch. Now, I got to ask you, I've been there. Have you? And what's the torch you would light when you feel the darkness creeping in? Because it's going to be anything that keeps us from saying, I'm going to lean into the Lord on this and rely on him. Behold, the Lord lets us light our torches. And when he does, this is what happens. He says, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you've kindled. The Lord very rarely would say, you want to light a torch? He blows it out. No, he doesn't do that. He allows that torch to light, and he allows us to walk with that torch that we've kindled, right? But he says this, this is what you're going to have for my hand. You're going to lie down in torment. Because why? Because that torch that we've kindled is going to burn us. It's going to catch on fire. And we're going to find ourselves suffering in that. Because the the commendation that says, I'm going to rely or trust on the Lord because he is faithful, now says, Lord, I don't know if you're faithful. I don't want to lean on you in the darkness. I would rather have light apart from you than be in darkness with you. See the difference? And the Lord, in his goodness, says, you think you want to light the fire? I'm going to let you light the fire. And because that's the only way you're going to find out that it's better to be with me in the darkness than to be in the light without me. And the Lord says, I'm going to let you have it because it's the only way we're going to learn is we're going to have to feel that. And all of a sudden, that's where it goes. And so the question for us is what? How do we find our strength in the Lord? How is it that we step into this? Because we all have known that feeling of being greatly distressed. We know that. And when David says, I went to find my strength in the Lord, we understand the dark places. Matter of fact, we even understand lighting our own fires, right? How do we not light our fires? How do we find strength? Well, I think that Scripture offers us a few ways. I mean, you certainly could have some of your own specifics, but I think this. One is return to his promises. What has God said? 
Well, if we know the Lord, we know several things. One, he says, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. Even in the darkness, darkness is no big deal for him. Remember, I'm the light of the world. He's not afraid of the darkness. He brings light. And so we lean into him. And he says, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. He says things like that I work all things together for your good if you love me and are called according to my purposes. Are those promises for the whole world? Absolutely not. You know who they are promises for? Those who know the Lord and obey the voice of his servant. And all of a sudden, we have the privilege and knowing that his promises are made for us. Return to what he has said. Remember his faithfulness. Remember what he has done. I mean, you know, he does things like part the Red Sea. He does things like knock down walls or trumpet. He does things like putting air and oxygen back into lungs of people who have stopped breathing. We're going to remember what, we're going to return to what he said. We're going to remember what he's done. And then all of a sudden, we're going to reorient our situation. Okay, I don't know what he's going to do, but I know this. He told me I'm never alone. He's promised me that he's going to work together for my good. And he does crazy things like part C's for people to walk through. So I don't know what he's going to do in my current situation, but I know that he's up to the task. And I'm going to lean into him because I got nowhere else to lean and he can sustain me and I'm relying on him and only him. Because when it comes to this, a couple of things to remember about our circumstances. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what you're facing, but I know this. The circumstances that you're facing cannot nullify the promises of God. If he has made those promises to you, you are held firmly and safely in his hands and you can trust him because whatever those circumstances are, they cannot restrain God's power. The one who puts uh, oxygen back into lungs, who knocks down walls and parts Red Seas, has said these things to you. We recognize, or excuse me, we return to his promises, we remember his faithfulness, and then we reorient ourselves with what we're seeing. But whatever we're seeing, it can't nullify God, it can't restrain him, and it does not discredit his character. He is safe, he is there for you which is why we can trust him. Is it any wonder that when life got really, really hard, David greatly distressed, everybody else says, let's go kill somebody. That'll make us feel better. And David says, that doesn't solve anything. That just creates a new problem. David said, I'm going to go to the one place that in the darkness of my life, I can rely on that I'm going to fully lean into. This feels dark, but I'm going to lean into him because I got nowhere else to go. And he's the only one that can answer those questions for me. And so he finds himself in that situation. So look with me, if you would, at verse 7. And David said to Abathar the priest. So Saul killed all the other priests. Abathar is there, and he goes to Abathar, and he says, uh, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Now, we don't know a ton about the ephod, but this is what we kind of know, okay? It's kind of like an apron-like garment. It has a pocket in it, probably made of linen of sorts. And in it was what they used to, we would call it casting lots, really, or drawing, you know, the short end of the stick, that kind of thing, is there was the Urim and the Thummim, and there were two things, and they would be inside of there, and then you would shake them. And this was the way, or one of the ways that God revealed his will to his people. Now, this is a different day. This isn't us now. They weren't indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God wasn't obligated to speak through this, but he frequently spoke through this. And so you could say, God, do you want me to do this or that? And you'd shake them, and whichever one fell out was considered to be the answer of what you should do, okay? And so he goes to him and says to the priest, I want you to bring that to me. I need direction, right? 
Verse 8, and the day and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this man? Shall I overtake them? Two questions. I need divine guidance. Do I pursue them? Will I overtake them? So the first answer comes back, yes. The second answer comes back, yes. But he gets more. Look at what he says in the second half of that verse. So he asks the question, shall I? Here's the answer. Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Remember the foreshadowing in verse 2? How many of them are dead? None of them are dead. Because you don't go rescue people who have been killed. This is your first chance that David, if he's paying attention, said, wait a minute, rescue? Not only are you telling me to pursue them, but you're also telling me I'm going to win, I'm going to overtake them. And then thirdly, you're telling me there's a rescue coming? Some of them are alive. Can you imagine the joy? Oh, man, what a great moment. So David, verse 9, set out, and the 600 men are with him. They've lost everything. The 600 men, you want to stay here? Well, there's nothing to stay here for. We might as well go on into battle. Not to mention, you've told us we're going to catch him. You've told us we're going to win, and you're going to tell us there's a rescue coming. Oh, I'm all in. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. What? But David pursued, he and 400 men... 200 stay behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook. David, 600 men, rah, rah, we're going to go get them. You can imagine David said, we're going to go get these guys, and we're bringing them back. Well, how do you know? Well, because the Lord told us to pursue them. He said we're going to overtake them, and he said there's going to be a rescue. Well, yeah, I'm all in. And so 600 of them start moving out, and they come to a brook. And all of a sudden, there's 200 of them that from battling, from fight, fatigue, maybe they weren't feeling well. It was a three-day journey back. The emotions of having everything gone, there's 200 of them that look around like, we, I just can't go any further. I, I, I don't have it in me. I can't go any further. If you're David and you think with the, uh, the, the mind and the eyes of David, you think, oh, great, we're going to fight a battle. We just lost 200 soldiers. But that's no big deal for David, right? He was undermanned against Goliath. And what did God tell him? Pursue, overtake, and rescue. It doesn't matter how many people David has with him. The Lord, who is faithful to his promises, said, pursue, overtake, and rescue. Okay, if I only got 400, I don't know what God's going to do, but I'm in the darkness. I'm going to lean into him. And if he doesn't come through, I'm toast anyway. But that's who God is. And he always comes through. And so all of a sudden, you're down to 400 men. Okay, here we go. If you look down at the story, verse 11, they found an Egyptian out in the open. As the story goes on, as they're traveling, you can imagine these are, now we're down to 400 people, full of emotion, they're tired, but they want to go rescue. And they come across an Egyptian. And the Egyptian's on the side of the road, he's not in good health, and the soldiers find him, bring him to David, and they ask him, what's going on with you? He hadn't had any food or drink in three days, and so they nurture him. On their way to go rescue, they pay attention to somebody who's struggling. And David leans over and says, what's your story? Who are you? And all of a sudden, the guy comes back and says, I'm an Egyptian. I'm sure David's like, okay, fine, you're an Egyptian, okay. What else? And he says, I'm a servant to an Amalekite. I'm sure David had a little bit of emotion at that point, but he doesn't really know what happened to Ziklag yet. And then he said, and then the servant says, let me tell you about these cities we just finished raiding. We just demolished Ziklag. Now think if you're David, what goes on? You? You're one of them? You're one of the ones that went and destroyed us? 
And all of a sudden, David looks at him and says, hey, how about this? How about you take us to where that army is now? And he's kind of vulnerable. The Egyptian servant's kind of vulnerable. I mean, what's he going to do, right? And he says, I tell you what, I just make this one plea. I'll take you, but I want you to not kill me. I want you not to turn me over to the Amalekite army because if I lead you to them, they're going to kill me, but probably do some things to me before they kill me. And we're not sure, we're not told how David responds to that, that plea, but look at verse 16. And when they had taken him down, when the Egyptian servant had led David and the men down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Imagine that. The Egyptian servant walks up, and he's got all of David and those 400 remaining men, and they're looking out across the landscape, and they see the people that took their wives and their kids and their, their money and burned their city. And they're down there in revelry. They're eating, drinking, carousing, dancing. They're having the time of their lives with no idea of who's perched right above them getting ready to come down, and certainly had no idea that the Lord's words were pursue, overtake, rescue. Verse 17, and David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. The battle ensued. From twilight today for 24 hours, it was a complete and total victory that David and his 400 men left uh, left with. Now think with me, 400 men left, which was the size of David's army when he walked into that, um, to that attack at twilight. We hear all these words, it was, he struck them down, not a man of them escaped. The odds were never with David's and his favor by human eyes, but God has said, pursue, overtake, and rescue. So God, with anybody, is a majority. It really doesn't matter how big your army is. When God calls you to something, he tells you to pursue, overtake, and rescue, then we go do it. And all of a sudden, that's exactly what happened here. And we're told 400 of them escaped, which, oh, by the way, is the same number of people that David had to attack them. And off they go. And that's 400 little uh, messengers, isn't it? Yeah, y'all wouldn't believe what happened. We were just there. We were having, we were enjoying the plunder of a bunch of raids. Everything was good. And then all of a sudden, this army overtook us, a small little army, and they wiped us out. And we just got out of there by the skin of our teeth on this camel, right? 400 messengers spreading the name of God all over creation as they go. Verse 19, nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. You know what God said? You're going to rescue. And he comes back with everything. Can you imagine the joy and the celebration? Imagine the conversation of those 400 people. You know all those guys were bragging about what they did to their wives and their kids, right? You would not believe how strong I was. I was so brave, right? And so they start coming back. And they've got, now you've got David and you've got the 400. You've got the wives. You've got the children. You've got the animals. And everybody's coming back. Can you imagine the racket? How loud that is? Is they're laughing and joyful and the celebration is going on and on and on. Verse 21, then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. 
Here they come, 400 spouses, children, animals, everything. Here they all come, and the 200 that couldn't go on to battle are at the brook. And all of a sudden, they hear them, and they see them. And you can imagine the anticipation. They stand up. They greet them. They're like, they're coming. They're coming. We must have won. We must have won. And here they come. They come out to greet David. David comes up to greet them. Everything is great, right? Until, verse 22, then all of the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had not gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may lead away his wife and child and depart. If you're on the riverbank, on the side of the brook, you're thinking, we won, first person plural, right? We're identified together. If you're the 400 coming back, you've got two groups of people. You have the people that said, man, we were on a mission from God to redeem and restore. God said, pursue, overtake, and rescue. And we just took him at his word, and we pursued, overtook, and rescued. And now we're back. Isn't this great? But look at the descriptors, for there's a subset. There's a subset here, the wicked and the worthless. There's a group of those 400 people. We don't know how many. They're described as wicked and worthless. And they look around like, no, 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 no. No, you you didn't fight with us. You don't get it. Matter of fact, we don't care about your spouses. We don't care about your children. We don't want to deal with them. We don't want to take care of them. We don't see any value in them. You take them. We don't want them. But you know, anything we think has value, we're going to keep. Because you didn't fight with us. And all of a sudden, you hear the entitlement and the comparison and everything that's going on. And David has harsh words for them. Verse 23, but David said, you shall not do so, brothers. And what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hands that this band came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down in the battle, so shall his share be who stays with the baggage. They shall share alike. David looks up and says, you want to claim rightful ownership to this? The only reason we got this is because God was with us. He preserved us in this. This wasn't, we were outnumbered. We wouldn't have even gone. We lost everything. Matter of fact, you wanted to stone me a couple of days ago. And now you think that you did this? That ain't right. You can hear his voice, right? Now, I want you to keep your finger here. Point to that last phrase at the end of verse 24 and look on, maybe it's the other side of your page. In chapter 31, verse 6, we looked at this passage last week. This is a difference between David and Saul. David says, we're all going to share alike. Saul said this, thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. See, if you're with Saul and you're that, that leader that wants to adulate himself and feel good about himself, they, they all meet the same fate. They all meet the same fate of death. When you're with David, who has a big picture of, I'm just following what God's calling me to do, then all of a sudden, we all share alike. We all share in the spoils of what the Lord provides. One body, many parts. We all have different parts, but together, we're the healthy, functioning body of Christ. And all of a sudden, we see exactly what he's trying to say here. Matter of fact, verse 25, David from that day forward made a statute and a rule for Israel that is from that day forward. No, we're all going to share alike. That's who we are. See, isn't it so refreshing? When we come to this and we look at Micah 6.8, this is the verse we talked about when we went through Micah, obviously. He has told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Remember this? But to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Remember that? 
We talked about it really being an inbirth. We learn how to walk humbly with God, and in doing so, we learn to love kindness because that's God's heart towards us. And as we learn to love kindness and give that away, then we begin to do justice. Because you know what David would say in this? I'm going to keep this up here for a second. What David would say to those soldiers, those ones, the, the wicked and the worthless ones, is it was never your stuff to begin with. That was somebody else's thing. They fell ill and they weren't able to go with it. Why do you get what was rightfully theirs? It was theirs. It was never yours. We went and got it. Our job is to do justice and give back to them what's theirs. Why would you all of a sudden think you had rights to what was theirs? And see, David all of a sudden is just doing what he was called to do. Because when we look at the rest of this, if you read through the end of the chapter, you see that he went on to the rest of the countries and the lands that had been raided, and he gave all the other lands back their stuff because he was on a mission to do justice, because he learned how to walk humbly with God, and that created in him a loving kindness that all of a sudden he wants to do justice. And he became the arms and the feet to which God was doing this great work. His role was to be faithful and to do justice and give back to all those other people what was rightfully theirs. And we got a group of these worthless and wicked people among the 400 like, no, 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 this is all on us. We get credit for this. No, says, no way, no way. We are God's at God's disposal for whatever he wants to do in us because David really did grasp the truth of Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And that was enough for him. He was on a mission to be God's agent for whatever God called him to do. He never aspired to be the king. He aspired to be faithful. And all of a sudden, we see God using him in really incredible, significant ways. You know, as we trace this story, life hurts. They got back. He was grieving. He sought the Lord. He heard the Lord. He trusted the Lord. And then he chose to honor the Lord. Are we called to do that even in our pain? We absolutely are. There's no caveat. You, you can dishonor the Lord when you're hurting. That's not there anywhere. No. He sought him. He heard him. He trusted him. And then he honored him. And those were the steps that were there for all of us. You know, many of us use, or maybe you're familiar with Oswald Chambers' uh, devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. Uh, I've liked it. I've used it on and off over the years, but I got to tell you, there's one that I love the most. Every time, it grabs me. And in preparing for this morning, this stood out to me because I think that, I think Chambers catches something here that really captures me and I think may capture you. Chambers writes this, naturally, we're inclined to be so mathematical and calculating that we look upon uncertainty is a bad thing. Now, I would just ask you to consider that statement for a second, because if we miss this thought, then the rest of this is going to go right over our heads. Do we like certainty? Do we like to know what the certainty is? Because he's about to talk about the benefits of uncertainty, okay? We look upon uncertainty as a bad thing. We imagine that we have to reach some end, but that's not the nature of spiritual life. The nature of spiritual life is that we are certain in our uncertainty. I know that I don't know what's coming. Consequently, we do not make our nests anywhere. Certainty is the mark of the common sense life. Gracious uncertainty is the mark of the spiritual life. Now, let's just pause a second. He's making a bold statement that certainty and the spiritual life do not go together. Certainty and the common sense life go together. And if I asked us to consider, do you want to live a common sense life today or do you want to live the spiritual life? We know the answer. 
So he's making this statement. Gracious uncertainty is the mark of the spiritual life. To be certain of God means that we are uncertain of all of our ways. We do not know what a day may bring forth. Still with him? This is generally said with a sigh of sadness. It should be rather with an expression of breathless expectation. God, what are you going to do? Okay, God, you told me to pursue, overtake, and rescue. And I got 600 men. We're outnumbered. And then all of a sudden I lose 200? Oh, God, this is going to be good. How in the world am I going to pursue, overtake, and rescue with only 400 people? God, you've got something to do. And God says, I'm good with that. We're uncertain of the next step, but we're certain of our God. I don't know what you got for me, God. I don't know what's going to happen next, but I know this. I don't question you at all because when the lights get turned off and I'm in the darkness, give me you in the darkness over light without you any day of the week because I'm fully leaning into you because you're all I have. And immediately we begin to abandon to God and we do the duty that lies nearest. He packs our lives to surprise all the time. I, I don't know, but I know that I can do this today. In the darkness, I, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to lean into the darkness. I can lean into the Lord because that's all I've got. So I'm going to lean into that. And if we're only certain, excuse me, if we're only certain in our beliefs, we get dignified and severe and have the ban of finality about our views. But when we're rightly related to God, life is full of all oh, spontaneous, joyful uncertainty and expectancy. Who wants to sign up for that? Give me that because believe also in me, said Jesus, not believe certain things about me. Believe me, trust me, lean into me, rely on me when the lights go out and I promise you, don't just believe that, that you can. I want you to believe it. I want you to put all of your weight into me and trust me in this. Leaving the whole thing to him it is with glorious, uncertain how he will come in, but he will come every time. That's who he is. Why? Because we are going to return to his promises, and we're going to remember his faithfulness, and we're going to reorient our current circumstances because our circumstances are no match for our good God in heaven who shows up in the life of his children every day in every battle. That's who he is. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. You can also hear each week's message Sunday mornings on 89.5 FM KMOC. Listen to our podcast online anytime at gracechurch.com or find us in the Apple Podcast directory. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.